Guys, you're in for a good one this week. Let's do it. There exists a threat from anti-hunting groups to politicians trying to give our land away, and we won't stand for it. Those vast western landscapes provide the space for our wildlife to thrive and a place for hunters and anglers to fuel the fire that sparks their soul. In this show, we share our love of hunting, fishing, and conservation. Here, we provide the foundation to meet these threats through passion and the grit of the American outdoorsman. Welcome to the Western Huntsman Podcast. gentlemen welcome to this week's episode of the western huntsman podcast this is jim huntsman your host coming at you from the broken tan studio right here in clark fork idaho hope you guys are doing good i know we are neck deep in uh, many of you are in to the whitetail season uh we just finished uh, mule deer season up here in fact today was the last day in a lot of the units up north uh here in idaho so i've seen a lot of uh, just masher bucks going down but uh, I failed to deliver, <laughs> so now I'm turning my attention to muzzleloader elk and and uh, these uh, wily old whitetails cruising around North Idaho, and uh, we'll we'll see how we do. But in the meantime, uh, I've got a I've got a new friend that has written a book called Turning Feral, and in all or full discretion, um, I have not totally finished the book yet. I'm about halfway through, and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, it's a great book, and the author's name is Zach Hansen. And by luck, we were able to record tonight and get him on the show and uh, get this uh, get this book in front of you guys because I think you're going to really like it if you check it out. So, Zach, welcome to the show, man. Well, I appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. I've been a fan for a while, and you know, hearing the my own theme song is what it really boils down to. <laughs> man, I uh, the craziest thing just happened. I don't know what happened, but you cut out there. I just hit record again. Now it's fine. Um, <laughs> so we're gonna have like this weird gap there. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I mean that that happens. I'm gonna blame Verizon instead of AT and T this well, time around. It, it actually it was at, so I record on a software called Audacity. And mm-hmm. it just like suddenly stopped recording. I don't know what happened. I must have hit a button. Anyway, um, no. To answer your question, when I when I first recorded that intro, I'm I was so I, I am not normally all that anal retentive, uh, but I was so anal about how it sounded, and uh, I recorded like twenty different versions of it, and I settled on this one, and it was probably the most imperfect one. Uh, I just huh. like the way it flowed. So uh, I listened to it like a hundred times when I first recorded it. And this was, you know, th- back in 2019 and uh, I've never changed it. So I don't know. I appreciate it. Well, it's that. awesome. <laughs> it would make me want to like bash through the walls like a Kool-Aid man every yeah. morning. So. It does pump me up, man. Every time I start recording, it's like, okay, I hit the, I hit the intro music. Uh, I found that music uh, on this, you know, you can jump on these different websites or whatever that sell this music. That, so you have the copyrights to it. Because I didn't know when I first uh, when I first started recording a podcast, I thought you could just use whatever music you wanted, and I had some song that I've always liked or whatever. And apparently, I learned quick that that was illegal. Uh, you got to have <laughs> rights to use it, so I had to go buy the rights to that. And I really liked the music. Me and my wife picked it out. Yeah, that's great. I love it. Well, I'm pumped up too, so I'm ready to rock and roll. Sweet man, I like hearing that. Um, I want to. I, I want to. Let, let's kick it off by. Uh, 
kind of introducing you've got a super interesting background man and and it kind of i don't want to like give away the the essence of the book by any means but give us a give us a snapshot of who you are and walk us through like where you were a few years ago versus uh where you are now yeah well why don't we start with where i'm at now um which is atlanta idaho which is a small town of 35 people no grocery store, no gas station. It's about 70 miles up the middle fork of the Boise River uh, from Boise. And we're at the base of the Sawtooth Mountains on the southern side, the good side, um, as uh, compared to Stanley and Ketchum and that that area. Um, very much a off-the-grid town, right? There's 35 mm-hmm. of us. Uh, our power is self-run. We do everything by ourselves, and it's a great community. Um, but to contrast that, where I was a few years ago was in a bunch of big cities. Um, I had always bounced around between New Orleans, New York, San Francisco, doing kind of the typical Bermuda Triangle in the United States of the tech hubs of the world. Um and then ultimately just packed my bags up and made my way to Idaho. So it's a little bit of a, a foreshadowing of a little bit of the book. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, I'm off grid now. And I started off where I was very much in the opposite world. Well, we're going to I, I want to talk a little bit deeper about that. But um, how'd you grow up, Zach? You know, so I grew up in Georgia, the state. Uh, you know, it's interesting because where I grew up, there was a lot of hunting right? Georgia, South Carolina, Tennessee. You know, I had a lot of friends that were into hunting, but for whatever reason, mostly because my family didn't hunt, I didn't come from a hunting family. I just never took to it. I had friends who would go with their families and I'd occasionally get invited, but for whatever reason, as a kid, it just didn't strike me. I loved being in the woods. I loved reading books like Call of the Wild. I loved reading about mountain men, but for some reason, it just didn't hook me as a kid, and mostly because I didn't have much of an opportunity. Sure. Uh, but grew up in Georgia, South Carolina, uh, went to high school there, was a wrestler all through high school um, and into college, and yeah, just grew up in the Southeast. So, like, you you didn't hunt, but you didn't have, like, a negative view towards hunting uh, or really a positive view. It was just kind of a thing that was there that you didn't do. Is that – am I tracking? You're tracking it completely right, but it's also one of these things where, you know, growing up in the early 90s and, you know, going to school in the 2000s, early 2000s, you know, hunting was there, but I only ever saw it as a trophy – type of exploit and for some reason that didn't appeal to me mm-hmm. but we had so much abundance in the you know early 90s early 2000s pre 9-11 like i didn't grow up around people who were really hunting for food so it was not yeah. something that i connected to like sustenance or a good healthy source of meat at that time so i think that's what kind of kept me at bay a little bit is i just didn't really see the point and then you so you grow up and you go, what, what do you go to college for this? Like, I don't even know exactly what it is you do something in tech. And I, I know that uh, you were living a pretty bougie lifestyle there. It seemed like yeah, from the it, book. It was, yeah, it, it was, but it wasn't, it didn't start out that way. So I actually, um, well, let me put it frankly, my dad 
kind of gave me the option of like hard hat or college application. I wouldn't say that I was like a star student in high school. Uh I was mostly focused on wrestling and girls. So, you know, college was something that I just kind of fell into and ended up going to a state school, like one of the two that actually accepted me. Um, And I wasn't a tech major. I was actually a political science major. Uh, And from there, I started to really pick up my academics. I'm like, wow, I really kind of want to do something with my life. Let me button down a little bit. So I did in college. I actually finished college in three and a half years instead of four, mostly because I was paying for some of it, which helped light the fire under my ass. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Working a couple of jobs through college is not always the funnest thing in the world. But I ended up getting a job with the Department of State. So I actually went overseas. So I was living abroad in Russia, Kyrgyzstan, the Republic of Georgia, ironically, uh, and then ultimately working in Vienna, Austria. Um, So I was doing kind of this public work, Department of State, uh, working for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, and kind of realized that the public service is great, but you're never going to make a lot of money. So I was like, well, uh, let's go back stateside. Let's reevaluate. Let's take stock of this liberal arts degree that I've, you know, achieved. Yay. Sure. But I want to do something in business. So I actually, uh, ended up going to business school in of all places, Saudi Arabia. Um, and that is because I am probably one of the most frugal people in the world. And I was refusing to go into debt for school. I was able to graduate undergrad debt-free from working and everything. And there are two countries apparently in the world that will subsidize education for foreigners, one being Finland and one being Saudi Arabia. And I had already done my time in the uh, cold north of Russia. So I said, let's give the desert a try and ended up going there for a little bit um, and started my MBA, which... You know, it's a little bit of a long-winded story, but I didn't finish it. I did two semesters, uh, and ultimately the Arab Spring kicked off. So the Department of State there, after a few death threats and getting held at gunpoint a few times, were like, you know what? Being the only American on a Saudi university is probably not the best place for you right now. You should go back to the U.S., somebody which held, is exactly what Somebody did. held you at gunpoint on the on the campus? Not on the campus, off the campus. And it was, you know, Saudis, they have something called Mutawa. It's the religious police. They were kind of wondering why a, you know, white male in Saudi Arabia was just kind of walking around. And they always carry guns. So they were walking up and, you know, did their whole passport checks. And I was going in and out of the consulate there. So I think they had, you know, their own suspicions. So they stopped me and did that. And then it was just suggested that I should leave. Dude, there was something. So I've been to Saudi Arabia when I was in the military, and there was something. It, it was, I don't know how to explain it or describe it to people that have never experienced somewhere like that outside of the U.S. Where it, I don't want to call it authoritarian, but it kind of is. And like, there's just this general feeling of hostility in some of those countries. And like, like yes. you don't want to, you don't want to screw up or you're going to, you, you know, you don't want to break a law that unknowingly, you know, you, crossing the street in the wrong spot or stepping on a crack or something. Does that make sense? It's just like, you feel like something stupid, some stupid shit you do could end up, you can end up in a lot of trouble. And maybe I'm off base with Saudi Arabia. I wasn't there for very no, long. No, you, you're not. It, it's one hostile. of those things. 
Yeah, you're you're a hundred percent correct. There's this tension that just kind of rides in yeah, the air. Tension. That's a good way to put it. Especially for a foreigner, like you said, where you hear stories of people being locked up for really silly shit, mm-hmm. and you don't really know what the silly shit is that you could do. And I am one who's probably pretty prone to silly shit, so it was always oh, yeah, just, me too. You know, uh, attention for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. So okay, so then they they you ship yourself back, or they ship you back to the U.S. because of the Arab Spring going on. What year yep. was that? 2012. 2012. Okay, that sounds about right. Uh, and, and you come back to the States. Then what? Come back to the States. Uh, I wanted to finish my degree, uh, my master's degree. I didn't want to pay for an MBA, so I ended up going to Johns Hopkins. I got a master's degree in analytics and statistics and got somewhat pseudo more technical. Um, same time, I started a company with a couple buddies. Uh, we miserably failed at building that company, like burn it to the ground, like did everything you could do wrong in a tech company <laughs> start out. Uh, and then I ended up going in industry. So I ended up working for IBM. So for the next really eight years, you know, I got married at the time. My now ex-wife, she was an FBI special agent. So we were just traveling around the U.S., mostly for her different locations and job requirements in the U.S., I was working for a bunch of different tech companies. IBM uh, got into machine learning and artificial intelligence there, went to a startup, started another company, and then went to Capital One to work on their machine learning. And then ultimately now I'm at a a video company uh, called Brightco, which is based out of Boston. But my whole career has just been remote. Through my last marriage, it was always have bag, will travel. So you know, we were bouncing around for the FBI, and then I was just on a plane all the time. Like I said, I was going to New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Austin, wherever my tech teams were, which were pretty much in one of those four locations, you know, for years. So what I'm trying to highlight here for, for everybody listening is like it's it's crazy to think, especially the way you describe it in the very beginning of the book kind of the life you lived and, you know, what you wore and how you had to travel early on that Monday morning and, and go to like mm-hmm. DC or whatever. Um, it, it's, it's interesting to think of, because we all know that type of lifestyle. And, and I guess I, I may be uh, able to relate it a little bit better because I, I was similar in a sense that I, I was looking for that uh, corporate life that you just feel like you're supposed to pursue because of the nature of our society and, and, and what they, what they prop up as, as you know, success or successful and, and blah, blah, blah. And, and I didn't, I, I just, it just wasn't me. It didn't, it did. I didn't make it uh, in that because it just didn't fit who I was as, as a person. And Mm -hmm. it took me out of the outdoors. It took me away from the things that I want to pursue in my life. That's very important to me. And so the the question just it, it kind of begs the question when you're doing all that at what point did you start getting this itch to pursue that wild and primal life that that you live now uh and and hunting became more of like you started thinking about it how did that even come about like you, I I know well I don't want to say that cuz it's in the book <laughs> I'm trying to be careful with that yeah, no, I, I can answer the question. And the, okay. 
answer comes from the fact that when you're living that lifestyle, and I think I use the verbiage in the book, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. Like we were, yes, yes. My my ex my ex wife and I were doing and checking all the boxes. It's like okay, get a career, you know, get an airline credit card so you can rack up the miles so you can get upgraded to first class all the time. Check, you know, drink your Jack and Coke on the flight. Check, you know, go to Singapore, go here, go there. You know, take a nicer vacation somewhere. But the dissatisfaction with it was always kind of latently there. And I always tried to suppress it with other things that living in a city could provide. Did you know, so for instance, did, did you know why, Zach, you were dissatisfied? Just as a side note before you go on? Not at all. And that was what was so frustrating okay. about it is because, you know, it was at this point where it's like, okay, I've been chasing this for so long. I feel like the dog who like chases cars and eventually he catches up to one. He's like, Oh, what the fuck do I do with this car now? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know. And I felt that way. And when I got to that point, it was more along the lines of, okay, now I recognize there's a void. How do I fill it? And I've always done physical things. I was a wrestler in high school. I've done jujitsu since I was 15. So it was always jujitsu. Yeah. Right. My, my ex-wife was a, um, world champion in jujitsu like we always just were at jujitsu all the time and it was such a great relief and release for us living this lifestyle you know always on the road but it, it left something else there was just something i felt that was missing and i try it with ultra running and i got a little closer right because that was outside you know it would at least be running through neighborhoods or a trail run if i drove my car out to somewhere um, to get some training in. And I started to kind of feel this pull towards the outdoors. And I just started to recognize that jujitsu is great. You know, I love it. I still do today. But the nature, just fresh air, it like gave me this hard reset every time I'd be out there. And I was like, okay, there's a pull here. And it really wasn't until my late twenties when, you know, influencers are influencers. Um, I am not immune to podcasters like Joe Rogan and when he would have Cam Haynes on or mm -hmm. talk to Jocko about shooting a bow. It was about that time where that was just starting to get popular and I'd be listening to this. I'm like, wow, like maybe that's what I need to do. I like the outdoors. You know, I like the idea of stalking through the grass with a bow and arrow. That sounds sexy. Mm -hmm. Let's try that. And that was kind of the impetus to even get me in was just that thought of how do I get a relief from this pressure that I'm feeling all the time on the road. Yeah. 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 And then you kind of, you kind of just not to fast forward, but um, I don't know if uh, my dogs are going nuts out there. So I'm, I, I record in an old camping trailer and it's not very soundproof. So sorry if my dogs are, <laughs> well, we can't hear it or at least I can. Uh, okay. So. It might, it might be picking up through the mic. Um, anyways, you, you, you kind of go, because the change in your life, Zach, was like super drastic. I mean, it, very. it's very drastic. You're talking about, um, you know, you're living in like, what was it, New Orleans? Yep. Uh, this huge metro area, and then all of a sudden you're in Atlanta, Idaho, which most people, I'll bet you, I would bet money that most Idahoans don't even know where that's at, unless they live kind of out, you know, maybe out north of Boise or, or uh, Stanley. I think Stanley's a pretty close town, isn't it? 
Well, as the crow flies, yes, but you know, driving wise, no. I mean, it's thirty miles in twenty minutes in an airplane. Yeah, or yeah. you know, it's eight hours in a car going all the way around because there's no through road through the the mountains. But yeah, oh, you're right. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, most people in Idaho don't know that Atlanta, Idaho exists. Yeah, <laughs> and it's you know, like you said, it's small, it's off grid, uh, but you're you're, uh, I mean, you're in the mountains, man. And for for me, I love it. I, I love this whole concept of living one way and feeling trapped in that. I I you know I I've been there. My wife and I. We moved down to Utah to Salt Lake City, which was like this huge metro area compared to what we were used to. And we both grew up in Utah, but but it wasn't like what Salt Lake City is, you know, mm-hmm. where we grew up. And and Salt Lake City just seemed like this foreign place to us. And I remember a, a few years later, I'm sitting on the the freeway I-15 that runs through Salt Lake. And, and I, it's like bumper to bumper traffic. And I look up at the mountains, the Wasatch Front, which is if anybody's ever been to Salt Lake knows what I'm talking about, this massive mountain range right there. And you can see it from anywhere in the valley. And, and I'm looking up at the top of that mountain and I'm thinking, what the fuck am I doing here? Like, mm-hmm. I, I need to be up there. Why am I sitting on this freeway with a million other people getting frustrated about just trying to drive home from work? Like, this is not who I am. I, I, it doesn't fit me. And I, I need to get the fuck out of here. And, and you know, and that, that's what we did. And we ended up back in Idaho here. But um, so I guess that was a very long way uh, for me to forget the actual question I was going to ask you. <laughs> well, I mean, we were talking about getting up to, to Atlanta and the drastic yeah, yeah. thing. Right? Yeah. How did you tell everybody kind of how you found Atlanta? Well, First off, it's probably pertinent to say that I just did not, you know, up and leave New Orleans on a whim, right? Mm-hmm. There, there was a catalytic event in my life, which was an unexpected divorce from my now ex-wife. And, you know, I was left having just started to dabble in hunting. I had literally just taken my first whitetail buck in Tennessee with my bow. And all of a sudden I was left with ashes all around me. And I was like, well, fuck. Okay. I can go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I literally, within a week of finding out about this kind of unexpected divorce, was in my car with my really rickety-ass old Matthews hand-me-down bow and the little bit of camo I had and a couple duffel bags and was driving north um, just on a whim. I drove up through Texas, up through New Mexico, up through Utah, stopped in you know, a couple national parks and just, you know, frankly cried and thought about things and like, what the fuck just happened, you know, in this Mm -hmm. blitz and just kept driving until I landed in Boise, which was not fully random. Uh, My now ex-wife and I had done a trip to Idaho the year before and I fell in love with it. And ironically, we went up towards Stanley uh, in May when there was still snow on the ground, of course. And I remember being there and this was several months before the the divorce happened. And I said, Hey, we're going to move to Idaho one day. And she kind of laughed. She's like, yeah, well maybe in, you know, 18 years when I can retire from the FBI, we'll do that. And I'm like, no, 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 it's going to happen. And I didn't realize what I put into the universe, which was that shit was going to happen and happen sooner than I thought it would. But uh, yeah, ended up in, in Idaho from that point on. And then when I got to Boise, I found some temporary housing regroup for a month or two and then just set out on a fucking quest to find 
where I was going to rehabilitate myself. I knew about hunting at this point. I'd been bow hunting. I knew I wanted to learn to trap at this point too. So I wanted to find a place where I could do everything out of my back door. So I went over to like Lemai County and went up to uh, Ledor. I went over to the Arco area and, you know, Fairfield, went up your direction. And then on a whim, just there was one property in Atlanta that came up for sale and it backs up to 3000 acres of national forest land. And I went and it was a snowstorm and I drove four hours in the wrong direction. <laughs> had to find. Yeah. And so ultimately I drove for like 12 hours that day just to get to Atlanta and found it and fell in love and was fortunately in a position to where I could get that property. Um, yeah. And the rest was kind of history. And so the property's off grid. Not fully. So we're, it is off grid in so much that is not tied into like Idaho power or anything like that. We have our own as a community, again, of 35 year round residents, you know, we run our own electric off of a dam that we have on the river. Um, you know, we have propane Ed Staub brings propane up to us every once in a while. Um, you know, we mostly run wood burning heat. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, obviously we have generators for the house, but yeah, I'm pretty much off grid outside of the electricity that's self-run as a co-op. So I'm just like friends and coworkers and family, you, you up and moved to this cabin out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I know you still work remotely from it, but like friends and family at the time and, and, and even your, your coworkers, you're like, Hey, uh, you know, I got a wild hair and decided to move to Idaho in the mountains where I'm, I'm in a town of 35 people. <laughs> what was, yeah, their, what was I, their reaction? I think a lot of people were worried about me. <laughs> I mean, just to be frank, <laughs> yeah, you know, I've been prone to, to, I, I don't view them as drastic steps in my life, but you know, my parents, other people that I've put through the ringer, I'm sure have, uh, you know, like as far as like, Oh, I'm going to go up and go to school in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Parents are like, well, shit, that's weird. You know, <laughs> or I got a job in Russia. You got a job where, or, you know, I've just led this life. So I think people come to expect it, but you know, with the hurt, everything from the divorce, I think people probably thought, well, that's pretty on par for Zach. However, we're worried about the guy too, because now he's doesn't know what the fuck he's doing as far as living off grid. And not only did he just, go the full you know football field length to the other end of the 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 playing field but he doesn't even know how to score a touchdown you know yeah so this high-tech exec moves Mm -hmm. to a town of 35 people in a self-sufficient community where you know the idea generally speaking because i I, you know i know idaho pretty well is there's a self-reliance there's not a big fondness of outsiders moving in How, I mean, you kind of touch on it in the book, but I kind of want to know how that went down. What, uh, what was the reaction to your new neighbors and all that kind of stuff? You know, being on the other side of that now, having been up there for a few years, like I love it because when we have new people come up again, there's very low turnover, right? There's Mm -hmm. only so many properties up there, but when people come in, there's literally one bar in the town a restaurant called the Beaver Lodge. It's great. They have rooms. If you ever want to come to Atlanta, check them out. However, it's very much, and if you've been to any small town in Idaho, 
or probably anywhere else in the West, you know, if you come in, even if you're visiting, like it's a locals club mm-hmm. and the locals are going to be at that bar and you walk in and you can feel the looks just cut through your soul. Oh yeah. And that's how it is in my town. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's the, like the old Western movies when the newcomer comes through the swinging doors and like the jukebox stops and, and everybody turns and stops what they're doing and looks at them. That's kind of how it is here. Yeah. A hundred percent. And that's what I got <laughs> for a while. And, you know, to be fair, it was, uh, there's a vetting process. Like, okay, who's this new guy? Is, is he from California? Yes or no? No. Okay. That's a little better. Is he a coon ass from Louisiana? Yes. I guess that makes it a little better. So it was kind of the slow <laughs> vetting process, um, along the way. But in most circumstances, I would imagine if someone from Idaho or, you know, someone who had some experience of being self-sufficient landed here, they would probably do better than me because they would be showcasing their skills like, oh, I can go fix this truck or, yeah, I know how to put chains on my truck tires or I know how to start a fire in my wood burning stove of which I knew nothing. So not only was I this new outsider, but I was also just this new outsider dumbass who had never lived in such a place as Atlanta and similar to yours. It's, it's a violent place, not just from like a a person standpoint, but when you're 8,000 feet plus in the Idaho mountains with no real, you know, utilities, no real public services, like it is tough living, especially in the Mm -hmm. winter. That was Mm -hmm. kind of right where I was coming out of. And, you know, I just didn't know what I was doing. So I probably made a fool of myself, but eventually we, we broke through that. Yeah. I mean, how anybody would, <laughs> man, in that, in that kind of scenario. I mean, granted, there, there was a, a couple of funny things you'd mentioned in the book, but, um, it, it's, it, it's one of those things where, I mean, anytime you go somewhere new, you're going to, you, you don't know what you're doing to an extent of which you don't know how you're fucking up. <laughs> you yeah, know, and so exactly. you don't realize you're you're making a dumbass out of yourself and that's so it makes it okay. I, I mean in a lot of ways. So and I think that you know there's there is a lot of especially well I imagine it's like that in like Wyoming and Montana. I have friends in my Wyoming and Montana that kind of say the same kind of thing. But there's a lot of resistance to to newcomers coming in from out of state because I think a lot of us worry about um you know, are are they are they coming here to try to shake things up? Are they are they coming here to try to bring the things that didn't work in their state and try mm-hmm. to think that they're going to work here? And so I think that that's where the resistance comes from. And obviously, it's there's there's frustration on the on the you know overcrowdedness of of a lot of things and areas that that we all enjoy as being rural Idahoans. You know, and so there's always that concern. But what I've what I've been finding, and I, I know there's people that would disagree, but the people that come here from out of state are generally like-minded and they're coming here to escape something that is not like-minded. And so they, they tend to fit right in. And, and so that's, that's a, it's a good, you know, they're, it's a good mix. It's a good mix of people. And I know it does get frustrating because it jacks housing prices up. And I, I'm careful mm-hmm. with what I say, Zach, because sometimes I'll, I'll say something and people misinterpret it. And then I'll get a flood of nasty emails. And so <laughs> not that I care, whatever, send them. But um, that's my, that's my uh, I guess, reaction to it is because 
uh, I, it just these small towns, it, it is so resistant to outsiders, and and especially if if they feel like they're they're not already on their level of you know living this self reliant life that is basically off grid and and out in the middle of nowhere, and you have to you know you got like you said, I'm not at eight thousand feet, but winters are tough living, man. I, I mean they are tough living up here. Um, we we get a ton of snow. You get a ton of snow. The roads are tough. Everything is violent and tough, and I, I, it's just all harder because everything's frozen. <laughs> you know, but, but so. you know, but to that point though, in touching on like the outsiders coming in, I think where I was able to have success, and where I can call all the people that live up there year round who are just hard ass people, you know, who range in age from you know, mid thirties up until their Mm eighties still, you know, is that I wasn't changing anything. Like I was coming to go step back in time. And when you ask anybody who's been up to Atlanta, Idaho, it is literally like stepping back into the 1800s, which I love. Like it is so different and so amazing and so hard that it just engrosses you. And that's exactly what I was seeking. Like I talk about it in the book, but you know, I'd always been living this life where I was having to come up with tough things to feel like they had consequences, but most of the things didn't really have consequences. Mm-hmm. Like not anything dire, right? Jiu-jitsu, I might get choked out. Ultra running, I might get tired. You know, when I was overseas, there was a little bit of danger, but it was nothing that was, you know, imminent. It's not like I was in a, a war zone or anything. But after the divorce, after everything else, wanting to learn this lifestyle, I just wanted to have that learning curve be so steep that it would be a literal do or die situation. And and that's what it turned into. And, you know, thankfully, the the people in the town, I think, saw that, um, appreciated it. And then everyone there, once you kind of break through the mold, right? And I'm sure you know, rural Idahoans it's just like being in the South to me, like everyone's so damn nice. Like whether they see from your viewpoint or not, like they die for you. There is only one call company here at the Western Huntsman. And that is Phelps game calls born out of hunting and the necessity to make the best calls on the market. Jason Phelps started this company in his garage back in 2009 And now he's got some of the finest lineup of elk calls, turkey calls, predator calls, waterfowl calls available on the market. If you guys go to the website, check it out and get what you need. And if you're in the market, when you go to checkout, use promo code HUNTSMAN10 for 10% off. Whether you're just getting started or have expert level calling skills, check it out at Phelps Game Calls. Get them close. Hoffman Boots is a fourth-generation owned boot company, a family of shoemakers based in North Idaho. I've been sporting a pair of Hoffmans for close to a decade, and I really like the Hoffman Explorer in the 8-inch. It's the best boot out there, so check it out at hoffmanboots.com, and you'll see the whole lineup of hunting boots and lineman boots and pack boots and everything else right there on the website. And if you choose to purchase a pair of boots, make sure you use the promo code all caps lock Huntsman 10 for 10% off. 
Scree Gear, extreme high-performance hunting attire and gear that is scientifically tested, complete layering systems, and some of the finest merino wool products to keep you warm and comfortable. And it's all backed by a great company. What I really like about Scree is if you go to the website, they have these bundle options like the elk bundle or the whitetail bundle or the turkey bundle, all that stuff that'll get you completely outfitted for your favorite hunt. The starter bundle is a really good deal. Make sure you check that out. They've got the VIP sizing guarantee. And so you can exchange something if it doesn't fit right at absolutely no charge to you. Guys, it's a great warranty, great company. And at checkout, as always, use promo code the Western Huntsman for 15% off and free shipping. The Elk Collective. Folks, the best investment you can make when it comes to hunting is what's between your ears. Having elk knowledge is what separates those who succeed every once in a while versus those who notch a tag every single year. So go to the Elk Collective and sign up. There's over 150 videos in this online course to teach you everything you need to know by some of the best experts to ever enter the Elk Woods. It's a great program at a great price, guys. And if you use the promo code, the Western Huntsman, you're going to get 20 bucks off of your entire course. So instead of 89 bucks, you'll get it for $69. And now that September is over and we're into October and November and all these fall hunts, if you get it now, you're going to have an entire year to go through all this course. And believe me, you're going to need it. There's so much content in there. So check it out and use the promo code, the Western Huntsman, all one word. Last but not least is Tacticam. Guys, you know I've been using Tacticam for a very long time. I really like my Tacticam 5.0s. I like my Tacticam in the wide lens, so you can get that kind of wider angle and shot. Uh, the, they've upgraded now. They've got the Tacticam 6.0, which is super cool. I can't wait to get mine. And also the cell cams. Don't forget about the Tacticam Reveal cell cams. They've got a bunch of different series of these things, and I've got them all over my property, so I know what's going on at all times. Whether I got a bear that's coming after my chickens, or if I have an intruder down at the driveway, or if I have a giant monster whitetail buck over in my hunting spot, I know what is going on at all times. I love my Tacticam reveals, guys. Check it out at Tacticam.com. Let's get back to the show. Here we go. Oh, yeah. They would. And it, you see that, and then that breaks through, and if you reciprocate it, and you fall on your sword, and for me, my whole thing is being honest, and that's exactly what I tried to do in the book, is be honest, and I would just let people know, like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Like, I need a little bit of help here. And everybody would drop what they're doing to do it and help me. And like I said, I, that learning curve was steep and painful. And there were real consequences to the dumbass actions I took. But that's exactly what I was looking for. And that's exactly what I found out there. So as you as you got settled in there and you're kind of meeting all the neighbors and, and settling into this new life uh, in a cabin, uh, at, at 8,000 feet elevation in the Wild West here. <laughs> so yep. to put it one way. What what was like some big surprise that you really didn't expect? Maybe you you had it in your mind that things were going to be one way, and but the reality is once you hit you, you know hit it on the ground, uh, it was way different. Can you do you have something like that? Chopping wood, man! Holy shit! <laughs> <laughs> Just you know, I, I never I grew up in the southeast where it was warm. Like I didn't have a wood burning stove. And I didn't realize how many cords of wood you have to, I didn't even know what a cord of wood was. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 
just listen, off the cuff. there's a lot of people that don't know what a cord of wood is. Just get on Facebook and try to buy wood and see what they call a cord of wood. You'll learn quick that a lot of people don't know what a cord of wood is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fair enough. But, you know, just even that, and that was just one of those like shocking things. Like I did not take into account, thankfully, mm-hmm. is, you know, how much effort like put the hunting and the trapping and everything else that I wanted to do aside. Like, how do you just stay warm? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like that is like a a surprisingly difficult thing when the average temperature is like five degrees for several months out of the year. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, yeah. Chopping wood is a whole, uh, man, I could do a whole podcast on, on firewood. I, it would bore the shit out of people, but uh, it's, it's a crazy thing, but a little hot tip, man. Um, I, I actually, I, I've chopped many a log in my life, so I don't want anybody to give me a hard time about this. So <laughs> I, I have, I have earned my dues when it comes to chopping wood, splitting wood, stacking wood, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I've, I finally broke down a bottle log splitter and it's a game changer. They're like, I don't know, 1200 bucks. <laughs> but it's a game changer. You can, it's it's mostly a time thing for me. I'm able to split so much more wood in a two hour time period than if I did it with an axe, and I love it. Yeah, so I found that out this year. So this was our like third or fourth winter up there. Mm-hmm. I had been so stubborn and hard headed that I wanted to chop everything by hand. But a little foreshadowing, I met a badass mountain woman uh, who ended up being my wife and we now have two kids together in this you know amazing time frame so we have two little mountain babies and this year all of my wood chopping in the summer fell right about the time my son was being born which was august 15th of this year so thankfully one of our amazing neighbors had a log splitter he looked at me and pretty much just called me a dumbass and said, use the fucking log splitter. Nice. And I relented <laughs> and it was amazing. Yeah. It went so much faster. Game changer, right? I mean, I, yeah. I, I should have a log splitting company like sponsor this show. That's how big of a fan I am. I love, I love my log splitter. I, I, and I put my, uh, uh, the little ear things in from that connect to my phone and mm-hmm. I'll listen to a podcast or something while I'm splitting. And in like two hours later, all of a sudden I've got, you know, a couple of cords of wood split and ready to go. It's awesome. So. Yep. And it's more, and it's more uniform. That was what my wife was saying. Yeah. I guess I am a very terrible, uh, cutter by hand with consistency of sizes of logs. Mm. So we have two different stoves in our cabin. So the upstairs one is a little smaller. So, you know, the sizes of the logs I'd split would be all over the place. But now with the log splitters, like, damn, these are uniform. These things going great upstairs, downstairs perfect so God, i agree awesome. with you. yeah tell me about your cabin man i'm super curious about it yeah so it backs up the national forest so the way atlanta is laid out is very interesting there's you know a huge downtown area you know of like four blocks of probably like 20 houses we call it downtown and then on the back side of the town which would be the south side um there's two big hills and you know in my mind and i call it in the book it's like we live up where the Grinch is and downtown in the little city areas called Whoville. Um, we're just on the backside and we look down into the Yuba breaks, what used to be Yuba city looking down towards Rocky bar, which used to be the state seat in Alturas County. Um, a long, long time ago, back in the gold mining days, which is what Atlanta was founded on gold mining. Um, the interesting thing about Atlanta, and this is kind of a, a sidebar is 
since I've been up there, I've been so engrossed in the history. Um, you, you just get absorbed in this area, the, the presence and the power that's out there. But the town actually was one of the most, if not the most, uh, lucrative gold mines in Idaho. No kidding. Um, I didn't know that. Yep. And, uh, you know, there's still some gold mining there today. We still have a lot of people who have, uh, you know, claims and everything, but it was at one point had 2000 residents in like, I think 1876, something oh, wow. like that. Of course, the majority were Chinese emigres, but, uh, it's actually been this whole thing. I actually wrote a fiction book called the bone scraper, the Atlanta load, which is going to be a series. Um, it's kind of like Quentin Tarantino meets Louis L'Amour. It's a Western uh, <laughs> set in the 1860s. Very violent, but really fun. Um, but it covers all the history in Atlanta, Rocky Bar. Um, and then in the second book, they all go down to the Awahis and learn about all the Hawaiians and everything. But um, I say all that to say there's just so much history there. Yeah, and there's actually like an Atlanta Historical Society. And, you know, I just got fully engrossed in that, you know, in the downtime between hunts and trapping. Yeah, I'm looking. I, I pulled it up on uh, on Google here, and it says Atlanta, living ghost town. Um, yep. And that's that sign coming in. Our home in the mount, or our home in the sawtooths. Yep, so, that's us. Because I've never been. I've I, I've known where it was at, but I, I I've actually never been to Atlanta itself. So, uh, well, you know, the standing offer come out, and we'll go run on my wolf trap lines. All right, you got a deal. Oh, I found the Beaver Lodge. There we go. Yep, that's it. Pretty yeah, sweet, you need, pretty sweet spot. Need a place to stay. There you go. And a burger. <laughs> so, and and that kind of brings up a whole other topic, man. Um, tell me a little bit about how you got into trapping. Uh, you'd mentioned you'd you'd met with um, Rusty Kramer, who's uh, he's been on the show. Uh, yep. And a great dude. He says I, I think he's still president of Idaho Trappers Association. He sure is. Yeah. Okay. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. How you got started with that? Well, you know, it's it's interesting, and I'm sure the lifelong hunters, lifelong trappers, it, the feedback I've gotten has been very positive, but I'm sure some people roll their eyes because I approached everything from a very academic standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, you know, coming in here to Atlanta, having only bow hunted for like two years and been pretty much a failure at it, except for the one deer I took, um, you know. I wanted to beat down that learning curve. So I took after every opportunity I could, which is one of the beautiful things about Idaho. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of opportunity and you know, where Atlanta sits, we've got everything. We've got mountain goat. We've got, um, you know, obviously black bear. We've got, you know, antelope a little further down river. We've got mule deer. We've got it all. And so, you know, I started out with elk hunting, you know, I ended up, was in a fortunate position to get a guide and went over in uh, the white clouds and did my first archery elk hunting started to learn how to bugle and cow call and do all the things scientifically year over year you know when antelope hunting you know mule deer hunting black bear hunting but what's interesting is, is for whatever reason the real draw i had and i think this came from my granddad who had a cabin in georgia and he was a hunter even though like i never went with him or did anything like that you know, he had traps around his cabin and he always talked about mountain men and trapping. And, you know, I'd always been a fan of history and I knew about beaver being, you know, the animal that really pushed the West expansion, right? The Westward oh, yeah. expansion all for beaver. And so despite all the excitement around bow hunting, all these different animals, 
trapping was something that I was just sucked into. So I approached it very academically. Like I reached out to Rusty Kramer. You know, before I even set a trap, I was at the Idaho Trappers Association conference, you know, going just all over the place, you know, just anywhere I could learn from people because I knew trapping would be a different thing than hunting. Mm -hmm. And I still feel that way today. It's like there is in my mind and people might argue with me. It's like there's hunting and hunting is great. You know, you have that primal feel of chasing down an animal with a, a stick and a bow, right? That's cool. But then you have trapping, which is just this fucking grueling experience. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way I can describe it um, is it's grueling. And you have to become so intimate with the animal to understand and get them to step in, you know, for a wolf, right? You have thousands and thousands of acres and you need this wolf or a coyote or a fox or whatever to step in a you know six inch by six inch square yep. metal plate, right? And that doesn't seem hard. And when people who've never trapped, they think, oh, you're such a cheater. You just go out and put traps and trap these poor animals. The ability to get them to do that and step on your trap is so hard. Mm-hmm. And when I started to do it and I found out how much smarter these animals were than me, oh my God, talk about like a drop kick to your ego. It was brutal. Yeah. I always get a kick out of it, all of that, man. There And there's so much of it. The, the whole, especially from non-hunters, non-outdoorsmen type kind of people, you know, when they say things like, you know, trapping is cruel and it's, it's not sportsman or, or, you know, baiting bears is, is not hunting because it's so easy. You you know, you just get all these bears coming in all over the place. You can't even keep up with them. And, and it's like, you know, people say that stuff and it's like, you know, the, the fact that you said that tells me that you don't know shit about what you're talking about because it's, it's just not like that. And you're, you're right. I think a lot of people, they kind of, uh, a group trapping and hunting together as if it's like a, a super similar thing. And it's really not, it's, it's a totally different lifestyle. And, and really, I feel like you have to, you have to really focus on one or the other, uh, to be really good at it in terms of, you know, seasonally, like somebody that is, is really big into elk hunting, um, is not going to be out trapping every day, uh, in September or whenever wolf yeah. season opens. I can't remember. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's about September. I it's think it's sometime, mid-September, yeah, so they, mid-September they sometime. Over. Yeah, they cross over. So, like, I, I have buddies that are, are uh, prolific wolf hunters, or I'm sorry, wolf trappers. Uh, they do a great job every year uh, getting getting these uh, wolves trapped. But they don't they don't start until after their hunts are ended because they, mm-hmm. they understand they can't kind of do the two together um, just because of the nature of how different they are. And it takes you to different country and the – uh, and the, the, the work that goes into both of them are, are so vast. Uh, I love it. I love the concept of it. Um, so uh, trap, uh, tell me a little bit about trapping in terms of, uh, did it, did it attach to you as a passion? Is it something that drives you more so than hunting does or which, which one is kind of like your primary focus now? I would say trapping. It, it's, it, it's so different. Like you said, like I, I believe that the trapping I've done and the focus I put on that has made me a better hunter. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, just from that, like attention to detail, understanding animal patterns. I mean, of course a beaver or an otter doesn't have the same patterns of an elk. Right. But there's some things you can 
put over like patients, you know, blah, blah, blah. But you know, trapping has been where my focus has been at. And it's just because it is such a bottomless pit of knowledge. And every time you think you've got it figured out, an animal proves you wrong. And <laughs> it's just like nobody has made me feel dumber than wolves, to be honest. So like when I hear people like Rusty Kramer, um, you know, my buddies at Montana Trappers Association, Chris Morgan. Like, there's just so many people who are out there doing it so well. It blows my mind because for me, I still haven't connected on a wolf um, trapping. Yeah. And I've come like fourth in inches, but it's just these situations where, you know, for whatever reason, you know, maybe I didn't descent my traps enough. Maybe I didn't have the right set. Or maybe, you know, the way I was having it go into bait wasn't the right way because i'll get paw prints right up to the pad yeah or like you know the crap pan but they won't step on it they won't step on it they'll go right <laughs> around it'll be like a 90 yep. degree turn you know or something to that effect and it's so frustrating but it's also so engrossing because every time you get like an inch closer did you know um, oh go ahead go ahead i cut you off man no, no, that was it. I just get yeah. a little bit closer every time. Well, eventually it's going to connect, and and it's going to be one of yep. those things where it's like playing a, a word search game. You know, you're always looking for for something to to put this thing together, and then all of a sudden it it makes sense, and there it is. And I think that that's what happened. And I'm I'm not speaking uh, from a place of. Um, you know, credibility when it comes to wolf trapping, because I don't trap wolves. I, I don't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I simply because I would, you know, love to, but uh, simply because it, it really does run through some of my favorite hunts uh, when it starts. And you've really got to get those trap lines set before getting into, you know, December and January if you want to run them all winter, I, I think. And, or yeah. at least that's what I've been told. But did you know Rusty? Uh, is perhaps the first dude in Idaho to trap a wolf uh, since they've been re- reintroduced? Yeah, I have, I have heard that. He told you that story? He didn't tell me the story, but I have heard that of Rusty. Yeah, yeah, I, I and I believe it. And so I, I think he was, uh, I should get him back on the show. I haven't talked to him in a while. Yeah, well, in the book, when I start to talk about trapping, one of the stories from Rusty, you know, my head nod or hat tip to trappers, you know, having done it for a few years now and, seen a little bit of success is you know tom miranda who i mentioned in the book too obviously famous Mm -hmm. trap hunter um you know i have a book of his you know master trappers it's kind of a coffee table book but he has a ford and i can't remember who the author is but it's from the 1920s and he said you know there's two p's in trapping and one is pleasure one is profit and clearly right now we don't have the profit right so the fur prices have just been yeah for lack of a better word dog shit yeah for for a few years so people who are out there doing it are doing it pretty much at a net loss either a for conservation efforts and management or you know for their own furs or to make a little bit of a buck here and there if they can you know trap some wolves or maybe otter or something along those lines and I talk about the book about there is nobody a harder worker than somebody who's trapping for a living period. Yeah. And the anecdote I give is most people aren't doing it full time. And you know, rusty is an example and I have a picture in the book and he sent me a video too, but you know, you get miscatches, right? You might be targeting wolf. You might be targeting coyote. 
you might head out to check your line at four in the morning before you punch into your regular day job at 9 a.m. And oh shit, you've got two full grown mountain lions or black bears in your trap. And, you know, the ethical thing you have to do is, you know, put a catch pole around their neck, figure out how to release a, you know, a very strong four coil spring trap from this really pissed off predator's foot all before you punch into your like nine o'clock day job. Yeah. And it's insane. You know, it's just one of those things, but you have to be prepared for that too. And that's, you know, part of trapping is, you know, you get, you know, unintentional catches, but most of the time those are other really pissed off animals that want to rip your face off and you have to deal with it. (laughs) So what all have you uh, caught trap wise? Trap wise. So, I mean, the biggest thing that I've really fallen in love with are beaver. Honestly, we have so mm-hmm. many up in the Atlanta area and, you know, ironically as part of giving back to the town that I joined, you know, in Atlanta, I ended up joining or rather getting elected as public office as a highway commissioner up there. Cause we have so many miles of dirt road. We have to keep clear of avalanches, everything else. Eventually I was voted in as chairman and we have problems with beaver washing out our road mm-hmm. and we're not, obviously a a big place we have two operators we have some heavy equipment and you know we can't afford to have these beaver washing out our road and causing millions of dollars of damage on a road that is our literal one way in one way out and that's become more impactful to me now as a father with two young kids Mm -hmm. you know if life flight can't get in we have to drive out yeah and i've got a story about that life flight that's not in the book where we almost lost my wife and my unborn son, which we'll touch on in a little bit if you want to, but yeah. Um, yeah. I want to hear that. Yeah. And anyway, so we have to do that. So I ended up working with fish and game. So I have a, um, a special kill permit for beaver that are encroaching and, you know, doing damage on the road, which is a, a pr- surprising number. So beaver, um, I caught my first otter last week. It was an accidental catch in a beaver trap, but it was really awesome. And I, you know, hated fleshing that out cause it is about as bad as beaver, but it's, uh, beautiful huge otter black and gray other than that fox coyote um what else is there obviously uh occasionally mink martin pretty big and then wolf you know obviously i caught all those things that i just mentioned with the exception of wolf which is still kind of my my what's it called a white buffalo yeah (laughs) whatever you can't get yeah for a lot of us, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. The uh, now on the on the wolf topic, are you, are you a member of a Foundation for Wildlife Management? Yeah, I'm. I'm prepared to get my check if I ever actually. Connect, you got to catch but, uh... one. Yeah, you got to catch <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah, it's a great organization for that. So uh, that helps. That you were talking about. You know the what? What did he say? Profit was one of them, and uh, pleasure. Pleasure. Pleasure was the other yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I'm curious because honestly, you're. I, I, you know, I, I read a lot of books and you're a really good writer, man. Um, it, you're good. It, it flows well. Uh, the book is like one of those, I always hate when I get a book and it just seems daunting to read it. Do, do you ever get uh, those ones? It's like, it's just too much information or it's, it, it takes too long to read. Maybe I'm just a simple dude. I don't like it when I'm reading a book and it takes forever to cover one page. You know what I mean? And yep. so the way it's formatted is great. Uh, what made you sit down and, and say, you know what, I'm going to write a book about this uh, because, and it's an interesting thing because the, the the transition you 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 went from is pretty extreme. What made you want to write a book about it? 
I've always liked writing is the first thing. I've always been a writer. I've written another book. It was on artificial intelligence. Um, like I said, I just got done with writing two fiction books mm-hmm. that I'm shopping around to publishers. Like writing is kind of like my cathartic getaway. So I'd already been taking notes. Like I've always journaled. So I kind of had these notes about like, I knew when I was going through this divorce, when I was doing these things that the things I was feeling, the things I was going through were not just me. There were other people who've gone through that stuff before. So I wanted to log, you know, my unique experience. And then obviously I took a very unique path towards what I call like rehabilitation. Um, But it was sitting down and talking to friends and then talking to new friends who were like, dude, like exactly what you mentioned earlier. Like, okay, so you were flirting around San Francisco and New York like a couple months ago. And all of a sudden now you've got, you know, chains wrapped around your neck, uh, crawling through (laughs) rivers, you know, Mm -hmm. making leather beaver tail and sending it back to me. You know, like what the fuck just happened to you, dude? Like, uh, What hole did you get sucked in? I and, love it. And it was great to hear that. But then I started to think about like, you know, the term is becoming more colloquial now, like adult onset hunter, right? You hear that more and more. I think oh, yeah. the, the pandemic, people realizing that, oh no, I can go to the grocery store and they might not have meat on the shelves, or I might have to fight some obese chick for a roll of toilet paper. You know, mm-hmm. you never know. And that's made more people, I think, hunt curious, you know, couple that with some of the popular influencers in the space who talk about bow hunting. And, you know, I realize I'm not necessarily a unique anomaly, but I think there's so many more people who are good people who would benefit from learning about hunting, learning about trapping that don't quite have maybe the some might call it gumption others might call it stupidity to go full bore like i did and there's just not a lot of resources out there for people to say oh i can do that too sure and that's really what i wanted the book to be is like to cover all of the folly that i went through which is a lot and if you've read some of the beginnings like you know just down to like Okay, I shot a deer for the first time. Yeah. Now yeah. what do I do? You yeah, know, like, I love that. Uh, I love the way you described that too. It's like, okay, we accomplished this, but now, now the work, you know, actually starts, and it's like, what do I do with this thing? Yeah. <laughs> and it, YouTube and how to gut it, uh, yeah. stuff like that. I, I, you know, I just I love stories like that. I, I love, I love when people make drastic changes in their life to follow something that they're passionate about or something that they feel like they're they're missing in their life and they they make a major sacrifice or change to achieve the thing that ful- uh, you know to achieve the thing that fulfills them better and and that's what this story is and that's why I kind of you know I we we first connected and I kind of I read briefly the description and I was interest I was interested like immediately because that that is right up my alley in terms of you know I've I've always been a hunter I've always been an outdoorsman I was raised that way my whole family was you know and so it's 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 always super interesting to me when I see somebody who wasn't like that growing up that made this drastic change as a lifestyle and and has taken it on wholeheartedly and now you're you're where you're living 
uh, compared to how how you used to live and where you used to live and, and what your maybe goals were five years ago or 10 years ago compared to what they are today. And the things that, because I, I just don't know that there's a lot of people out there that will ever fully understand how uh, the disparity between the two different lifestyles. Like yeah. getting frustrated because your Uber Eats didn't show up in time versus getting frustrated because you just sharpened your axe, but then you hit a rock and, and now you've got to stop and sharpen this thing. It's getting dark and you don't have enough wood. Does that make sense? It's it's just a the life is so different. The the perspective changes so drastically. And so 100 percent. Yeah, it is the consequences for actions like, you know. Yeah, great. If your freezer, it. if your freezer goes out in a city, okay, you know your food might go bad, but you can go Uber Eats or you can go to the grocery store and buy more. Our freezer goes out in Atlanta, Idaho, and it's snowing. We literally can't leave. Yeah, you're you stuck. know, for potentially days. And you know, what do you do then? Well, we have a backup freezer, right? Or we have a little pantry that we have enough preserved food that we've pickled or done whatever with, and it's that long-term planning and, you know, you seem to only learn how to long-term plan after something fails. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a lot of what the book's about. Like, okay, well I did this thing. Well, that fucked up. And now I had to pay for it in this way. Now I'm going to re-architect that area of my life a little bit differently so I can plan appropriately. And like you said, it just resets your brain in such a, a primal way mm -hmm. that I can't ever go back. Right. I can't. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like you lift up the, the, curtain or you look under the rug and you see what life's really made of and you're like oh my god like you know some people might think living out in the sticks is a life of duct tape and paper clips which you know it is like there's this macgyver aspect to it of course but what you really it's really the inverse you look at living in a city and you lift up the rug and you see all this infrastructure that is actually so fragile that you are so dependent on and so many people are dependent on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think the pandemic helped expose that, like the grid going down in Texas in the middle of the winter. Yeah. You know, again, the supply chain issues we face with, like people are starting to see cracks in the foundation and driving to be hung curious, which again is, you know, ultimately why I wrote the book to let people know, like, you know, it's okay. Like, I think everybody should have their elbows deep in a deer's gut cavity at one point in your life and maybe 50% of the people who find themselves there might be like, well, this was an experience and I never want to do it again. Or the other 50% would be like, I feel amazing. You know, it's alive. It, yeah. It stinks. This is horrible. It, it's not fun. It's gory. But now if shit hits the fan, like I know what to do. I can pull a heart out of a deer and throw it in a pan mm -hmm. and you know, know how to handle the meat or turn the hide into clothes. You know, it, I'm always a little weary when I talk to people because I think people will, especially people I knew in the cities are like, holy shit, man, you went full prepper. Like, you know, do you have like a cavern with ammo and everything else? <laughs> like, well, sort of, but you know, also no, you know, I don't have like, you know, 800 days of dried foods, you know, be cool to get there one day now, but sure. Um, you know, it's not full prepper mode, but it's about being prepared. So it's a fine line between, you know, 
what you might see on the history channel with doomsday preppers or whatever, but there is this just element of self resilience. Yeah. And the, and the reliance that you have on yourself. And I think that there is, there's a changing tide of how people view the, cause a term prepper got demon. I don't know. Demonized. Is that the right word? Um, it kind of got this nasty connotation of like these super fringe kind of unrealistic um, conspiracy theorist type people that are stocking up for like a zombie apocalypse or up whatever apocalypse. And I, I think that that after, like you said, COVID kind of changed the perspective on that in, in kind of shine some light on that's not what prepping is prepping and, and being able to survive and, and having some self-reliance in how you live is, is, just a smart thing to do because it like you like you said i don't think that people understand how fragile our system and our societal system is and and how easily that could get derailed and i i worry a lot zach like when i when i travel for work and i go i go i I do go visit these some of these big cities like the ones you were talking about Mm -hmm. periodically and and I feel like that there is this massive amount of people in today's world that are kind of just going through the motions in life to achieve things that other people have defined as being successful, and they never questioned it. And so they're kind of in like this zombie mode pursuing these things that don't really actually make them happy, and they end up living this unfulfilled life of emptiness. And, and that's I, what you were. That was me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's uh, how many people out there are, do you think are going through the motions like that? Like, what do you have like a, have, have you ever thought about like what percentage of the population, especially, uh, from on, from men? Uh, because I, I think that this kind of thing is more of a, a, a mentality, uh, from the man's standpoint, if you grew up, you know, a few decades ago, there was this standard that men had to have or achieve. Uh, if this if this make is making any sense, but have you ever thought about that? Like, how many people are going through life like that and just fucking it up, <laughs> and they don't even know why? A lot. And you know what's funny is, you know, obviously, the book has come out, and you know, the trapping community has been a huge supporter of it, and you know, it started to kind of eke and weave into kind of the the periphery of you know conservation groups you know other people who are interested in hunting but even within those groups some of the feedback i've gotten has like literally just i didn't have a lot of expectations on what feedback would be because i just i've always just decided to put stuff out there like you know i write it Mm -hmm. i work with a publisher like get it out there like close my eyes and see what comes back but the feedback I've gotten is like so many people have just reached out and said, you've described the thing that I haven't been able to, which is I feel trapped or I feel like I'm in this rat race. And it's even some people who are, you know, pursuing outdoor lifestyles, like, you know, trying to be conservation officers or something else. They're like, I'm trying to fill this void. And I think that maybe being a conservation officer might solve that problem or, you know, working as a biologist in the outdoors might solve that problem. But, you know, talking about not getting to the core of just this rat race that so many of us get stuck in. And that's been one of the most 
uplifting things to be able to put something out there that people can at least resonate with and maybe help them, you know, define their own emotions and you know worries about our broader society. Yeah. And saying it's okay to unplug, it's okay to step back and you know, do things the old way and learn those things, even if you didn't grow up around it. Right. Like it's okay yeah. to go and yeah. fail and try. And as long as you're out there doing it, you know, you can find mentors for sure. But it, yeah, that that that's been great to hear that feedback more than anything else. I think I think you're gonna find that uh, how long's the book been out? Just a couple of weeks. It came out okay. on October eighteenth, so th- just out a month. Sweet. Sweet. So I, I think you're going to find that a lot of people are going to have that kind of feedback, that similar feedback and, and the relatable, and it doesn't matter. Um, but, but like what you were just talking about, Zach, like there is this void that they don't know how to feel. They don't know, they, they know there's a void, but they don't know why. And it's, it's because so many of us have been, it's been ingrained into our mind that there's a certain way to live your life as an American right? Mm. There's a, there's a certain thing to pursue. There's a certain path that everybody needs to take. Uh, and, and it, it, that, that kind of thing, it bothers me because it wasn't always like that, but it, it, when you look back historically, you know, it was these things of self-reliance and, and being able to achieve and handle situations and react accordingly and be prepared and protect your family and all those things. These were all just normal. Uh, where, whereas we, we've, become this society where it's like somebody else is putting a dot on a roadmap and then mm-hmm. putting you in a car in cruise control and saying, this is where you have to go. And, and then we get these people that are super depressed. You know, we've got this society with the highest amount of people on like these different medications because they're depressed and they don't know why there's no fulfillment. They feel lost. They feel like there is just no path to get out of this race. And I'm not saying that hunting and trapping and fishing and being an outdoorsman or living at 8,000 feet is a solution for everybody. But I, yep. I do believe that society has created this in a sense where we're not allowed to define what we think is a successful life. Like for me, I, I getting up in the morning and driving through traffic to get to an airport, to fly to another city, to meet, sit in a meeting and then getting an, uh, uh, some more traffic and fly home, see my kids for two minutes before they go to bed and they get up in the morning and go do something similar the next day. I'm sorry. That's not how I'm going to be defined. And that's not my life. It's just not, I don't care how much somebody pays me. And so yeah, it, you're, it's, you're it's giving inspiring. me PTSD with that <laughs> PTSD with that description, man. Like it literally gives me chills like yeah. hearing you describe that. Cause that description you just said was me. I know. I, yeah, absolutely. Oh. And it was me too. Uh, and, and so it's it's just a, that's why I was so excited when I kind of read the premise of your book. And um, it, it kind of, it, it really piqued my interest because of that. And and the, the thought that there are so many people out there that need something like that in their life and they don't even know it yet. And so we're doing our part here, Zach, to help people kind of get the blinders off. Yeah, I, I sure hope so. Because like you said, it doesn't have to be hunting and trapping. It doesn't have to be, you know, full bore diving in feet first. Mm-hmm. You know, I know you haven't finished the book, but I'll give a little bit of a, a foreshadowing here. And if, if people could take away one thing after this call, you know, it would be, and I'm actually going to stand up and grab a copy so I don't misquote this real quick. 
bear with me. Oh, you're good. You're good. And I'm going to flip to the back of the book. Do, do, do. You hear the pages turning. By the way, I do quote Jeremiah Johnson quite a bit in this book. <laughs> you won't be judged for that here. Which is good. Where are we at here? I'm having a harder time. I guess you read the book a hundred thousand times and editing, and then you can't find what you need. <laughs> yeah, man. Which, which, by the way, you know, it's probably worth noting. You know, the publisher that I went with, um, I actually had a opportunity to go down to Austin, Texas, and you know, it was pretty awesome. I actually got to work with Tucker Max. I'm not sure if you know who that is, but he's a four-time New York Times bestselling author. He wrote the book series called I Hope They Serve Beer and Hell. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, very interesting and unique, obviously, uh, subject matter. But he's an amazing writer, and he's got a, a publishing group now. And what's funny is he actually has a blog called, uh, like I think, Doomer Dads or something along that way. But he actually owns a ranch in Texas now. He's become more hunt curious and where his food comes from, raising bees, raising cattle, you know, harvesting bison and things like that with his kids to, uh, you know, get them involved. But, you know, he's the one who ripped this book to shred. So if there's any like inkling of good creative writing in here, you know, just imagine me sitting there talking about my ideas with Tucker Max and him telling me how fucking stupid it is and that I should be uh, changing it to something else. And we did. And we, you know, we worked collaboratively and, you know, he helped really mold a lot of what I was. Um, how long, how long did it take you, Zach, to write the book? You know, so honestly, it took me six weeks. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. So, and I can't find that quote, so I'm not going to try while we're live. But um, it took me six weeks, but it was also with a lot of the coaching from Tucker. So I'll give a little bit for anybody who's out there really interesting, interested in writing. The best advice that I got from Tucker and the group down in Austin, Texas, Scribe Media, you know, they're the same ones who helped publish David Goggins' book um, and a few other you know, really big New York Times bestsellers yeah. was – vomit drafting i told you i've always written but i always write and i think oh shit that's pretty good and then i'll go back and i'll like edit the same sentence 40 times yep, yep um and never get anywhere so he told me like put blinders on and just write every day you know block out the words behind it never go back and touch it till you get to editing and i actually did it and i just stuck with it and so it's called vomit drafting and i just vomited it out every single thing that i had in my head and got it on paper. And then all of a sudden I had 50,000 words, right? Wow. And that's a 250 page book, whatever. And then you go through editing. And then obviously the editing is just horribly brutal because you look back and you're reading some of the stuff you wrote that you thought was great. And you're like, wow, am I like a third grader? Like what happened here? Yeah. I've um, done that a few times, man. Yeah, it, it happens. But you know, then you start to be able to carve it out, you know, and we had a caregiver for our daughter. She was, God bless her. She listened to me read the book out loud um, several weeks in a row and just sat there and like was a warm body for me to read to. And we molded it. And I think I'm proud of the end product. Um, I think it turned out pretty good. But yeah. uh, 
the quote I couldn't find, it's actually a story. I have it somewhere in the back of the book. Um, it was a story that was written in 1907. It's called The Machine Stops. Okay, I remember it now. The Machine Stops. It's a short story. And anybody here who should go Google it right now, pull it up. It's 27 pages. I think you can get it from like UC Berkeley online. It's a PDF. Mm -hmm. This writer, can't remember his name, literally like foretold air travel. This was before the Wright brothers. What did you say the name of it was again? The Machine Stops, a very apropos name. And the premise of this is it's a story of this woman and her son. And in this futuristic world, this gentleman from 1907 is describing is everybody has moved underground and everybody has their own cells, like their own rooms, uh -huh. because there is no need for air. There's no need for this because this machine is providing everything for you. They only seek higher education. So everybody stays in their room. And essentially, you can FaceTime anybody anywhere in the world. And you're supposed to give lectures and only focus on philosophy and the, the real, you know, higher callings of life. Wow. But what you find in this story is this woman has her son who was assigned a room all the way on the other side of the world. And the son kind of stops FaceTiming her, essentially. I'm using FaceTime, but they call it something else in the story. And they have air travel. So she finally gets so worried about him that she leaves her room, which is the first time she's left her room since she gave birth to her son like 30 years before. And the ship leaves the underground lair, flies up, and she's looking at these mountains, which are the Himalayas. And she just talks about being so disgusted. Like, how could any human have ever wanted to live in that area? Blah, blah, blah. Wow. She gets to her son. And the moral of the story is the son has found a way out. And her son is leaving to climb out these air ducts as this machine starts to break down, actually. And there have been, like, some people who have made it out and found out, like, what did we do? Like, you know, there's so much better life out here with real air, with, you know, the mountains, the living world. And it was just so enthralling to me that that existed. And somebody was already thinking about that in 1907. And I think it summarizes our world so well that we've just been like you've mentioned earlier just indoctrinated that let us provide for you let us put you in that car set you on cruise control don't worry about anything but people and i think i'm one of them have started to kind of see the the flaws in that mm -hmm. and are starting to break free just like they did in that story but it's amazing you should go God, read it it's, half, pages. it's almost creepy man it's almost creepy that a guy wrote that in 1909. Oh, let's see. 1907. Yeah. You'll have to look it up, but it's pre-1910. That's crazy. It's 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 half eerie that somebody had that kind of foresight because it, it, it probably is like some kind of preemptive way to talk about what our society – and not that we live underground in cells or whatever, but uh, there there is just – I don't know. I – I'm going to check that out. I'm going to read it because I, I'm interested in stuff like that. I think it's I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> It'll absolutely blow your mind. Yeah. There was actually somebody at my work who had mentioned it to me who was like an English major, and I read it offhand. I'm like, holy shit. Like, there is no way like That's this crazy. person wasn't a time traveler. But yeah, yeah. yeah you'll, you'll read it. It'll blow your mind. And it just goes to the storyline we're talking about tonight. Like, it's sad. And you're right. Like, the prevalence of pills, the depression. Like, I have close friends who have, gone down these paths of 
you know, careers, whether it be lawyers, doctors, whomever. And, you know, we talk and sometimes it's, it's sad. Like yeah. there's real depression there. And it's from, you know, people who have succeeded by mm-hmm. those standards that have been set out. And then you think about the people who were left behind, right? Yeah. What are they feeling? And there's so many, it's just a generation. Oh yeah. It's, it's sad. Yeah. It's bad. It, yeah. It's, it's, it's gotten every, it gets worse with every generation and it just feels like there's no way to stop it and, and no way to refocus what, what it means to, to live your life in a way that you want, not what society expects of you. And, and that's what I like about what you did is, is you bucked the system when you had achieved these heights as, you know, working in, in what, what we all have been indoctrinated to view as a successful life. And, and you gave it all up and you bucked the system and pursued what, what you were passionate about and, and what you felt as a calling to switch to. Um, so anyway, congrats on that and congrats on the book, man. I know I've kept you long here, but, uh, this is really good conversation, dude. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it and, uh, love the podcast and, and you know, had some great guests on in the past. So I feel very privileged to have been able to join you and even more privileged that you picked up the book and you've read some and you've enjoyed it. And yeah. I just hope that it'll continue to you know, impact people in a way that either a gets them outdoors or B helps them find their own path to, to happiness. Cause that's exactly what my path brought me. It brought me a new wife. It brought me two wonderful kids who all love the outdoors and are willing to go do dumb stuff with me in the woods. (laughs) I love it. I love it, man. And you're raising a new generation of outdoorsmen and hunters and and people dedicated to this kind of lifestyle. So it's absolutely fantastic. So um, you guys listening, Turning Feral, A Modern Journey of Hunting, Trapping, and Living Intentionally in the Wilderness by Zachary Craig Hansen. Uh, Zach, where can people find the book? Uh, really wherever books are sold. So Amazon is probably the best, um, place, you know, Barnes and Noble carries it probably not at your local shop, but you can get it online. Um, if you Google it, you'll find it and you know, any, any support will be much appreciated. No, that's fantastic. I have, uh, guys, I'll put the link uh, to the Amazon where you, uh, I bought it off Amazon and it was here in like two days. It was awesome. Um, I'll put the link in the show notes so you guys can check it out. Uh, and is there anywhere else you want to direct people to like Instagram, Facebook, website, anything like that? Well, given my, uh, history and in artificial intelligence, I gave up most social media long, long ago. Um, <laughs> however, you know, I am pretty active on LinkedIn. If you can call that a social media platform. So if you have a LinkedIn, add me there. Otherwise, you know, you can reach out to me via email. Um, you can reach me at Zach at the outfitter dot guide. Um, that's another company I'm starting in the outdoor space. We actually are going to have a booth at the Western Hunt Expo in Salt Lake City in February. So you can come visit me there as oh, well. Sweet. Talk about, you know, guiding and outfitting as well as the book. Um, yeah. That'll be fantastic, man. Well, I sure appreciate you you joining me on uh, on the episode here. Um, let's keep in touch. I want to I kind of see how your journey goes uh, as you go forward. Uh, I have a feeling you're going to have more books in the future as well. Um, I'd love to get you back on in the future and just kind of keep, let, let's stay in touch and keep doing it, man. Well, perfect. Well, you have to visit Atlanta now. So, uh, come on out, stay yeah. at the Beaver Lodge and we'll go run some wolf trap lines and maybe you'll be my lucky charm. <laughs> you never know, man. You never know. Usually I'm pretty unlucky to take along. Just, uh, just being totally forthright with you. 
<laughs> yeah, me too. But maybe maybe two wrongs will make a right. <laughs> well, I appreciate the invite. I'll I'll definitely come down there. I'm I'm super curious to see this little town. Um, and uh, yeah, again, man, thanks for coming on the show. This was awesome. Perfect. Thanks, Jim. You made it. That's the end of the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please make sure you're following us on Instagram at the Western Huntsman and write us a good review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Stay Western, and I'll see you on the mountain.